What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. Today, I have the very first guest of this podcast some 430 episodes and five years ago. We have Richard Shodden, author of The Choice Factory, founder of Astro 10, and author of a brand new book, The Illusion of Choice, 16 and a half psychological biases that influence what we buy. Richard, we last spoke five years ago. You've been on a journey which we're going to talk about, but let's start with today. Second book about to come out. How are you feeling about your life professionally and creatively right now in this moment? Good in general, but a little nervous about the book coming out. When I wrote The Choice Factory, I don't think anyone knew it was coming. I didn't think I told particularly many people. So if it had been a complete flop, it would have at least been a private flop. So I think with the second book coming out, it always feels a little bit more, more pressured. So today we're going to talk a little bit about what you've learned as a published author, but also having set up your own business the past five years. And we'll get into some of the psychological biases that you cover in the book. And my goal is to try to get you to not just introduce us to some of these biases, but connect them to what you've learned in your own life. This is a confessional podcast. That's where we're going. Let's go back five years ago, because over the past few years, obviously, the world's sort of turned upside down. Uh, Maybe it was always upside down. And I have to say that I hear from a lot of people, especially in their 30s and 40s in this industry, who wish they could write a book, want to write a book, they want to set up their own consulting situation, they want more independence, more creative fulfillment. Five years ago, you were publishing this book, but you were a full-time employee. What happened for you to be able to flick the switch and go full-time independent operator with Astro 10? The book was crucial. So I wrote The Choice Factory while I was fully employed at an agency. And when it came out, a few clients, a few brands approached me directly and said, okay, well, you've written this book about applying behavioral science in general, marketing. Could you take these findings and apply it to our particular challenges? I think the first two people who contacted me directly were a big craft brewer in the UK, so Brewdog, and then a publisher called The Week. So it's owned by a company called Dennis. And probably a little bit naughtily, in my weekends and my evenings, whilst working at an agency, I was also doing consultancy. And then once I'd kind of done that and was running out of time, I went and approached the company and said that I was working for the agency, I was working for Manning Gottlieb, OMD, part of the Omnicom group. I said, would you let me go down to three days a week and I can try and launch my own company? And so I did that for a few months and until that time was full and I'd got lots of clients and then I launched on my own. And if I was looking back and thinking of the things that I'd recommend to other people who want to set up on their own, I'm quite a risk-averse person. So I think the best thing I did was not make a jump straight in, you know, give up the agency job on a Friday, try and launch consultancy on a Monday. If I'd done that, I think it would have been much, much harder and much more stressful. By launching it half-half, if it had failed, and many new businesses fail, you know, you can't predict what's going to happen completely. If it had failed, it'd be much easier to go back to the agency, the original plan, and go back to five days. Whereas even if I left on amazing terms, if I'd gone completely, you've lost your headcount in the bureaucracy, much, much harder to go back. So I think taking some of those baby steps, like I did that kind of stepped approach, makes sense. I want to point out also that if people are considering going on this journey, it is very useful to actually set up establish your public voice while you're an employee with a big title in a big company because a lot of people have a vested interest in interacting with you your colleagues people that 
want you to hire them. And so even if you turn up with LinkedIn with a really simple post, you will get way more interaction as an employee of a big company than four weeks into setting up your independent agency where you'll basically just go over people's heads. I think you're right there. And there's also an economic argument. Now, if I get asked to do a, a talk, it's weighing up, well, there's an opportunity to that cost. I could be going out and getting business and earning income. If I'm an agency, there was no opportunity cost. I'd still got paid my, my salary. So you can both help your agency raise their profile and your own by doing lots of can or marketing week or brand week talks whilst you're an agency, build up that profile. And then, yes, yeah, it's, it's absolutely much, much easier to get leads from clients if they already know who you are or your point of view on a topic. I mean, it would be simplistic to say step one for you was to create a bunch of IP that you could repeat because that's a really critical step in weaning yourself off timesheets and weaning yourself off decade or two or whatever it is in advertising where we're constantly waiting for that next thing, the next hit. Because really before that big step, there's have a 10 to 20 year career (laughs) in education and privilege, et cetera, right? One. And two, start to build your public voice. So even before you released the Choice Factory, for how long were you active on social media trying to consciously build a public voice that perhaps you could trade in on later? Well, the conscious word is key there. Then if I said consciously, well, probably not at all. And that might have been a a benefit. I would run lots of experiments from about 2004. That's when I became interested in behavioral science. Maybe the experiments were about 2010, actually. And what I was doing was trying to take an academic finding. So maybe an academic has found an insight like the pennies a day effect. This idea, uh, I think it's Gawley or Gorville came up with, which is charities, if they ask for one pound a day, much more likely to get a response than if they ask for 30 pounds a month. I was always trying to, the agency to apply these findings from academia to commercial problems. So I'd read about a study like that and think, well, that's not going to land very well with a, a big brewer or a finance company because they think charity is completely different. So I'd take a, an academic finding like that and rerun it in a commercial setting. So say getting a sample of 500 people, split them into different groups, and a quarter might see an offer for a car, let's say £1,000 a year. quarter might see an offer for a car for £3 a day, and you know, the others would see the price as a weekly or, or monthly thing. And what we could show is exactly the same finding that happens with charities happens with brands. A car that talks about its pricing in an annual amount feels very expensive, take exactly the same price, split it into a daily amount, feels very cheap. So I was running lots of those experiments and I wasn't consciously thinking, oh, I should raise my profile by talking about these. I really thought, well, I run these experiments. If I put it into a, an article, talk about it, it means it's actually much easier. I was being slightly lazy. It's much easier. If anyone ever comes up to me and says, well, what were those results of that experiment you ran? I can just send them to the campaign article or the marketing week article. So some of it was really driven by a, a different requirement and it was almost an unintended consequence. It became this building up of this body of material that I could talk about at conferences, talk about with clients, write articles about, and eventually use as some of the the kind of raw material for the choice factory. Makes complete sense. So through your career, you were building up this body of work. Through that body of work, you were building up credibility through the media. And London, the UK does have more of a center of gravity with these things. The UK to me is more traditionally status oriented. So you know what the status signals are. The US is a little bit of a different game. Every country is a little bit different. And I say that just because I think the way that I hear a lot of people in the UK 
thinking about their futures. It's like, should I write a column for this place for free? Should I do a talk here for free? Should I do this, this, and that? And I'm like, wow, you're basically only looking at the operating system that you know. There's an entire universe, for example, a ton of people in the UK that with five to 10 years of hard work in the US, I think would be quite successful. But I feel like their eyes are stuck to what's statusful in London. Do you identify with that? Well, my world up until, you know, setting up my own five years ago, yeah, it was entirely UK. I never thought about America, never thought about Germany, never thought about France. It was only when I set up for my own that someone gave me a very good bit of advice, which is as soon as you set up on your own, and he gave me a huge amount of advice. One of them was, well, think about how you can uh, launch your services in America because the budgets are 10 times bigger. If the input you can have from behavioral sciences to improve something by half a percent or 10%, you know, whatever that number is, it might not be worthwhile for a brand in the UK, but it will certainly be worthwhile in the US. The same percentage impact can have a much larger absolute impact. So I'm probably guilty of exactly what you said, solely interested in kind of the London world or, or the, certainly the UK world, never thought about anywhere else. I want to talk about two P words, pace and pricing, before we get onto the choice factory and then your new book. When you set up on your own, you've got to learn a different pace and you've also got to learn how to price yourself. I want to mention this because I've recently just interviewed him and he's, he's turning up on LinkedIn and publishing a lot of really useful stuff, but shout outs to Will Posquet. I'm going to talk about you right now. We're DMing about it. It's winter in the Northern Hemisphere right now. And if you've just gone independent, not only are you in winter, you're in a strange economic cycle. And if you're in the UK, according to the research that I've come across, Brexit's kind of screwed you over for a little bit. I don't know if there's a control Z or control Z button for Brexit, but gosh, I hope someone makes one for you. Changing your attitude towards pace, knowing that winter could be really quiet and then all of a sudden there could be 10 inbound messages, DMs in March, and maybe it's also October. There's a busy season and then there are these really quiet seasons. Can you reflect a little bit about the first two or three years of you setting up on your own and having to adjust to a different kind of pacing? Because in the agency world, there's always something there, right? There's always the next thing. Yeah. So I think my experience sounds slightly different in that there definitely is pacing considerations, but I haven't seen that that seasonality. The pacing consideration that springs to my mind is the length of time it takes from maybe a first interaction with a potential client and actually a signed off budget. Not that you're having kind of conversations every day and it takes ages, but you do a talk a year later, someone says, oh, I saw you speaking about this issue. It's now come up and it's relevant for us. So when I said earlier about taking those baby steps to launch on your own, one of the big benefits is if you're part-time, you can start generating those early leads that will come to fruition you know, in six months, a year of time. That's been my biggest learning about pacing the sheer time. On the more like the seasonality point you mentioned, the ebbs and flows, one thing I've done to try and avoid that is when I was setting up very kind person, Jim Carroll, who was I think, chairman at BBH, had never met me, but we had a, a mutual friend. He very kindly took a bit of time out and met with me to give me advice on setting my own. And one of the things he said is make sure you diversify. He said, if you just do one thing, what you'll end up happening is you'll have these spikes of income, you'll have a feast and famine relationship. You know, you get surges of money and then you'll have kind of dark periods. So his advice was try and diversify wherever possible. So I did that by offering different services, consultancy, training, and also doing like talks and books, but also think of diversification, not just working with brands, working with clients, and they're also working across 
different categories. So if one category has a big seasonality, well, with another one that has an opposing one. It's interesting because I think in the startup world, we often hear about simplicity and focus being really, really important. Yet I've worked with pretty successful founders who are, who are massive and they're like, I like complexity in the business because it gives me different levers to pull. I can launch different things. It's more difficult to copy what I do. So complexity and simplicity can actually be quite useful. And you can blend the two though, I think. So I think that, yeah, there's a danger of saying diversification. You think, well, let's take a scattergun approach and do we're going to offer all services for all people. I think that you should be cautious about. The other bit of advice I got, I think from Jim Carroll again, was around the need for specialization. That if you are offering straight brand consultancy or straight marketing consultancy, I think you're on a tricky wicket. It's not that you can't do that. Of course you can. There's lots of other people that do it. But if you're launching and there are lots of other people doing it and your service is essentially a commodity, then your prices, which I think is a fascinating bit to come to, you'll have a race to the bottom. Really, you want to offer something that is meaningfully different from other people. So my angle, and it's not unique, that would be an exaggeration, but it is always how do you take financial behavioral science and apply them to marketing? So it's not marketing consultancy. It's a very niche take on, on that broader category, but it protects you from being easily replaced by a, a competitor. And also to kind of put a label on something you said earlier, which is get that body of work together. I think people have to shift their attitude towards pacing as that happens, because yes, you might need to turn up with your newsletter or your podcast or your LinkedIn posts a few times a week, depending on which channel we're talking about. But also you're like, I need to write a book. But don't stop at the book. So many people in this industry, they give their book away to a publisher, they get a little bit of an advance and their ego gets satisfied. They get their little status high, then they don't do anything with it and they don't even own the IP anymore as opposed to what is a book? A book is a piece of work. It's a body of work and I can flywheel that stuff. I'm thinking about, could I create a hoodie, a piece of clothing for strategists in which are all my words so that if they're in a meeting, they could look at the words and maybe get a tip. It's silly. I probably won't do it unless it's a stunt, but you can be a little bit silly. The point is really get that body of work together, slow your pace and work out how to flex it into lots of different formats. Live conversation exactly about that, which is thinking, written two books now, but a slightly different angle on related content, which is turning those books into a series of playing cards. So if people are in a brainstorm or they're on their own, they face a challenge, you've got 52 little cards and it has, now we're still working exactly how to do it, but a description of the bias, the insight from psychology, the evidence, and then maybe a prompt to how you could use it. So who knows if it will work? Might come back in five years' time and we solve three of them. But to me, one of the reasons I bloody love working on my own is you don't have to excuse a failure. If it fails, I've lost a couple hundred quid or a thousand pounds. Who cares? When you're an agency, I found your biggest fear was your boss thought you were a prat. So you end up not testing as much as you can, not experimenting as much as you can. I love that freedom to think the only person who's going to be holding me to account will be myself. And also when you set up on your own, you can't complain because it's you, you just got to fix it. And I even think with all the IP that you've got together, you could turn it into a school curriculum. I could see it in museums, some kind of experiential tour that you do to teach people about psychological biases. You could probably even sell that experience into some retailers. I mean, there's so many ways to flex the IP that you've got and you could probably flex it for 10 to 20 years. Two books, that could be I know it won't be, but that could be 10 to 20 years of you just bringing it to life in so many different ways, right? It can be dangerous of half starting a project. You know, maybe this is my own flaws, but half starting a project and then getting distracted by something else and it just sitting there. 
you know, I had an idea for another book, which was going to be taking 25 of the greatest ever campaigns that run advertising, finding out some of the history, the characters involved, and then explaining the success through the use of a bias. And I kind of half wrote that, got distracted. And now, you know, the A4 pages are scattered around my house. They're pretty a waste of you know, three weeks solid work. I'm also cautious of, there are so many things you can do. There are a lot of um, cold section in London. Ah, smart person. Hey, pull your mind out of those timesheets for a second and take a look at the Sweathead website. We have three membership levels, starter mode, flight mode, and beast mode. They give you access to a variety of strategy masterclasses, conferences, accelerators, and online learning, some of which has been known to make people cry because they like it, they like it, they feel seen. Make the most of your mind this year or any year and visit www.sweathead.com today. Now back to the interview. Do, 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 do. So I want to talk about pricing just very quickly. How did you go about in the first year or two establishing prices for what you were selling? The first big thing was trying to be distinctive enough or differentiated enough. I wasn't commoditized. The second point was, I think I made quite a few mistakes. I was doing quite a lot of talks before COVID, so abroad. And on one occasion, someone actually emailed me from their Gmail address and said, look, happy to pay you what you've asked for, but we would have paid twice as much. So that to me was eye-opening in that I was in a bubble, essentially. There's now three of us, we've got a copywriter, another behavioral scientist myself, but the time was on my own. I had no idea what was a realistic rate. I probably was arrogant and thought that I had a good idea, but it took a bit of a wake-up call like that to open my eyes. And I think from that, I learned, well, the more, whenever you meet someone who's doing something similar, especially if you are you might be kind of competitors, but you're often competitors who can help each other. Trying to get that intel on what others are charging to set a realistic benchmark is great. So that was one thing. You know, don't operate from a position of ignorance. Try and get some of those market signals. I think the other thing that I found out was once someone was reselling my work on and they accidentally left me on an e-rail chain and I realized the markup they were putting on the work I was doing, which, which was quite painful because it felt unfair considering they were doing an administrative role. So you say, yeah, 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 don't assume you know what the market will bear. I read quite a lot about pricing, negotiation, and one of the books I really liked, and it's got a kind of unique style, so it might not appeal to everyone, but there was a Chris Voss book. I think it's called Never Split the Difference. And a few things that stuck in my mind there were, don't negotiate with yourself. What I'm really bad at, you know, I'm not particularly outgoing. I know that what I want is to close the deal and I'll get a little buzz from that rather than maximize profit. And what he said is, be very careful if you find yourself in that situation. Let's say we're talking about a project that we'll just make a thousand pounds, let's say you think you could get. What I've been bad at doing in the past is thinking, well, okay, but this person, there's only two signals, they're not that interested. Maybe I'll, I'll go down to 900. Oh, but you know, times are tight at the moment. Maybe I'll go down to 800 and so on and so forth. And his argument is, well, well, go with the higher price. As long as you're not breaking kind of fairness conventions taking the mickey they can always come back and ask you to reduce it and what i've begun to think since then is if my pricing is always being accepted i'm undercharging i should have people coming back to negotiate and on occasion people just saying no now i see it not as success to get all my things accepted but to think well i'm probably underpricing where i could be that's super interesting. Pricing discovery is one of the terms that people use to talk about this. And again, if you're thinking about launching or you've just launched, pricing discovery is an ongoing thing. So every interaction, as Richard just described, is an opportunity for you to learn. You don't win or lose. You 
say what you think is reasonable and then next time you work it out, maybe you increase it, decrease it. So it's a constant or continuous state of discovery. The other one that I love, and it's a really simple approach, you know, loads of e-commerce providers use it. There is a long-standing idea in psychology called extremeness aversion. So basic principle that uh, I think the first experiments were done by Amos Tversky and what he did in lab conditions, and these were then replicated in real world settings, but Tversky would show people two cameras. So let's say there is a Minolta camera that costs $100 and a Minolta camera that's a bit fancier that costs $200. And roughly you might get a 50-50 split in the camera people pick. He then gets another group of people, gives them those same two cameras, but introduces a third camera for let's say £500. And it's all sorts of fancy added extras on that £500 camera. Even if no one picks the £500 camera, what you see is a change in the relative popularity of those first two cameras. Now, the second camera, what has become the middle price camera, becomes much, much more popular. So Tversky called this extremeness aversion. And his argument was when we pick a product, we aren't just weighing up price versus benefit. We are looking at the relative position. And a rule of thumb we use as consumers or as business people is often pick the middle one. We worry that cheap will be poor quality and it will bring problems in that way, but we worry the most expensive will be overpriced and over-engineered. So people gravitate towards the middle. And of course, you can change what the middle option is by changing what you surround the product with. So one thing I've taken from that is I generally give people, if they ask consultancy, three different prices. So you can have, you know, bronze, silver, gold, you know, and you use essentially the most expensive one as a way of making the middle price more palatable. And you get a number of benefits. Firstly, it increases willingness to pay. Secondly, some people with big problems just want to buy the most expensive thing. You end up selling more that way. And then thirdly, I think what's interesting is as a service provider, especially in agencies, it's very hard to have a conversation about the trade-off between price and quality. If you've laid out the three prices and people have actively chosen not to have the best one, you have, I think, made it clear in a non-confrontational way, there is a trade-off going on. So just a simple thing like extremeness aversion. If you're pricing at an agency or as a consultant or as a brand, it's something I would definitely be using. Yeah. And I feel for those of you who've been around the sort of, I don't know, start, tech startup world, the company that created Basecamp, they used to write a lot about like design patterns and they were very, very influential. I think one of their books was called Unwork, which is a very quick and easy read, but they used to talk a lot about so you go to the website, there'd be three choices and the one in the middle would be emphasized and there'd be a lot of social proof around that, et cetera. So there are these techniques that are out there that are worth looking into. One final thing on the pricing thing, which I've had feedback is actually a little unusual. I don't know if you do this, but when I price things, I'll take a discovery call. And if it's a straightforward interaction, then I'll just send a really simple email, no attachments, no proposal with maybe one or two, maybe three, one or two prices, very short email. And I think it's counterintuitive because I think a lot of people as they're starting out think they need to put a big proposal together. I'm literally sending 100 words and trying to get a gauge on what they're interested in, if the interest is legitimate and what their pricing sensitivity is, not in a manipulative way, but just like, I don't want to spend a day putting a proposal together for something that they're really not ready for. So do you do that or do you go big proposal as a sort of second or third step? The proposals are never huge. And actually, even if it's a page or two, 90% of that is fix from the last one probably so i think there is a lot to be said for this mix of personalization to the individual client 
but also making sure where you can reusing relevant older work. So having a kind of templated proposal, which you can then spend your efforts on finessing is much better than always starting at the beginning again. The other big thing I've done in the five years of having set up and worked for myself, I think I've done, and I probably will never do again, a pitch. My view is if someone wants to work with me, have a conversation, why get into a pitch where if it's 10 or five people, then it's an awful lot of work. And even if you're amazing and we're honest, your hit rate's going to be what, 40% if you're doubling the average. So to me, it's a, a very wasteful use of time. So I've taken a slightly different approach on thinking, how do I get leads? I should stress, I'd never intended this at the beginning. It's a little bit fortuitous. Then there's always a danger if you look back at what you've done and try and give it a much more um, organized thought process than it had. But I offer training. I'll go into big company, big multinational, train people for a day about behavioral science, show them in workshops with techniques out how they can apply ideas to their challenges. And it's an amazing way of generating leads six months down the line. Because unlike a pitch, they treat you as an expert. Whereas on a pitch, they want to find problems with your stuff because it makes their life easier. They can knock you out and move on to other people. Firstly, they treat you as an expert. Secondly, you have a whole day to show your abilities, not just 45 minutes. And thirdly, there's no competition. And then fourthly, and finally, sorry, you're actually earning money. You know, don't do the training for free. You, people pay you essentially to demonstrate your abilities. So I heard about a digital agency that did that. So they would train brands on how to get their staff up to speed on SEO or PPC. And then they used it really in their mind as a lead generation activity. So I kind of borrowed that idea from them. So two bits, question whether you should be pitching. Secondly, think what's your lead generation bit going to be? And thirdly, don't be scared about looking around the entire industry and thinking whose technique do you really admire? And then thinking, can you adapt it to fit your particular circumstance? I don't know if that was Bruce Clay, but Bruce Clay is a well-known SEO slash paid search training company. And I had a client who said that they basically train you so that you understand how complicated it is and then hire them to do the job. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there is an element of that. I mean, anything that is a skill, if it's a decent skill, PPC, SEO, you can never train someone to your degree. If you've spent 20 years learning it in a day, you, you can get someone up to a reasonable standard. But I think you're right. For many people, what will happen is my worry was I might, by doing workshops and training, I'd cannibalize my consultancy business. Well, I've taught these people how to do it. Why would they want to hire me? But I don't think that's what happened. I think I'm sure some have this phrase, you know, as your island of knowledge grows, your shoreline gets bigger. If your shoreline of knowing that you don't know gets bigger. So if you train people about behavioral science, often they end up realizing this is a super useful technique for solving their problems, but they also realize they don't have enough knowledge to use it in every potential situation. I would point out to the people thinking about doing this is that you almost need to become the philosopher of your company. What's my stance on pitching? What's my stance on pricing? How quickly will I respond to emails? There are just so many other things that you need to form opinions about. It's quite fulfilling because I think in exploring a lot of these things that perhaps when you're in an agency that another department takes care of, you're trying to work out how you want to live, how you want to be alive, how you want to assert your own independence through a business at the world. Absolutely. And your point about, I think that you have a massive advantage on your own, not just economically in that you've got no overhead, so you can either have a massive profit margin or you can undercut people, but even more deeply in the type of work you do in an agency or any business, not trying to pick on agency, any large bureaucratic business, 
the motivations of the staff and the motivations of the business are at odds. An economist called Stephen Ross, who, who had this idea called the principal agent problem. So he says the principal is the shareholder or the company. The agent is the employee, or in our case, you know, the planner. And he says one of the major problems of brands is that there is a divergence of interest between those two groups. The principal, the shareholders, want profitable, long-term, sustainable growth. But the agent, the marketer or the employee or the planner, of course, they want that long-term growth for the company. But really, their biggest aim is their own career progression. So you end up, as an employee, I think, suggesting things to clients that aren't necessarily what the client wants. You want maybe to do some work that is award-winning, or you want to do some work that, if it goes wrong, it is defensible to a group. Whereas the advantage, if you're on your own, is you don't have to worry about being able to defend the work to your boss or a team of colleagues afterwards. So that, I think, allows you to do things that might have a massive upside, but also a high potential of a failure. Whereas if you're in a bureaucracy, you can't survive 10 failures in a row with a huge potential outcome. You'll be fired before you win your huge prize. And it's that uncovering, I think, these niches where you as a consultant or an owner of a company can benefit are crucial. So The Choice Factory, your first book, what are three things you learned about yourself through writing that book? It made me realize that I was probably unsuited to work in an agency and much better working independently. I think that's probably the, the main thing that what I really loved about the job was using behavioral science and immersing myself in you know, these thousands of experiments that academics had run. What I didn't enjoy and probably didn't enjoy it because I'm very good at it was team management, interacting with clients, trying to persuade someone to do a policy or approach that I didn't personally agree with, but we as a company decide was the right thing. I think some of those opinions were crystallized. That putting your ideas down on paper is quite tough because any gap in logic is exposed. What I've always found fascinating is when you have a presentation, you can have an argument that is pretty patchy that no one picks up on if whoever's presenting has a degree of, of flair. If you've written it down, any leap in logic or gap or logical error, I think is glaringly obvious. Let me just shorthand that one, which is you can't paper over gaps in logic in writing with charisma. Yeah, it's because probably people can stop and then go back, you know, two paragraphs. It's in the presentation. By the time they're thinking that there's an issue, they've got to have kept pace with the presenter and they've kind of glossed over it or forgotten about it. So I think partly it's the charisma of the presenter and secondly, the fact that it runs in real time rather than the read about to stop and jump back as they want. The third one, this is a learning about things in general rather than necessarily myself. Some of the ideas in the Choice Factory I had written articles about. Now, my original plan with the Choice Factory was just to 25 articles and then just put them together in a book. In the end, I didn't do that because I thought, well, I've been offered this contract by a publisher. I might as well make the most of it. I'm going to rewrite all this stuff. But what I found interesting was some of the things I had said in other formats, like in informal blog posts on a company newsletter, and they've got very, very little traction. Exactly the same idea stuck between two bits of card suddenly was got broad attraction. 
And that kind of fascinated me in that it is a literal reflection of one of, you know, a behavioral science experiment. There's an idea from Hovland and Weiss, called the messenger effect. I think back in 1951, they do this study, recruit a load of people, bring them and ask their opinion on some controversial matters of the day. So one of the questions was, do you think a nuclear powered submarine can be built in the next 12 months? They get the person's answer. And then they asked them, I think four days later, to come back into their lab. And when the participant arrives, there is a, a side of A4 with a tightly argued opinion piece on why the participant is wrong in their opinion. Now, the twist in the experiment is that sometimes that argument comes from a high credibility source. So in the case of the nuclear submarine Oppenheimer, the physicist, sometimes a low credibility source. So Pravda, the Russian newspaper. Even though everyone gets exactly the same logical argument, the proportion of people who change their mind on the issue is wildly different between those two groups. So I think it's like 7% of people change their mind when the argument comes from a low credibility source, 23% from a high credibility source. So the messenger effect is the argument that it's not just what's said that's mattered, it's who said it. And my experience from writing Choice Factory was that works in terms of media as well. Exactly the same argument said verbally, might get one response, blog, another, magazine, a a different response, written a book, completely different one. So I think the scale of that impact was quite interesting to me. All right. So we've spontaneously decided to break this into two episodes to make it an, an easier, smoother listening experience. So if you're listening to this as the first episode, do follow on for the second episode, which will be much more focused on Richard's new book, The Illusion of Choice, 16 and a Half Psychological Biases That Influence What We Buy. Richard, it was just good to catch up over the past five years because I don't know about you, but this kind of conversation is quite rare to have because there aren't that many people that you can easily talk about business with. And I think there are people who will be listening to this who will really benefit from it because I know there's a real desire and eventually a need because you're going to age out of this industry. We'll call it the advertising industry. You'll age out. But there's a real desire from a lot of people or in a lot of people to work out how to establish some kind of flourishing independent life. For me, it's a three to five year journey to even half know what you're doing. So be patient as you do that. If you want to catch up with Richard in the meantime, Richard, where's the best place to look? So I tweet about behavioral science on the handle at rshotton, so R-S-H-O-T-T-O-N, or come and have a look at the company website, astro10.co.uk, or a lot of the stuff we talk about, I'll cover in my books, The Choice Factory and The Illusion of Choice. Perfect, perfect. You're everywhere. Your flywheel's everywhere. Richard, I'll see you in the second episode. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend, subscribe to our newsletter, find us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Sweathead. And if you're interested in finding out about our strategy, memberships, company training or books, visit Sweathead.com. Whoop, whoop.